0: beloved, we continue our trek through the book of Esther and tonight we're looking at the first half of Esther chapter 9, Esther chapter 9 found on page 714 in the Bibles provided, 714 Esther chapter 9, we'll read the first 19 verses there, Esther chapter 9 verses 1 through 19. On the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. And on this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the, princes, of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshandatha, Delphon, Asphatha, Porantha, Adalia, Eridatha, Parmashta, Eridai, and Vasathai, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observe the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, A day for giving presence to each other. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Beloved in Christ, a number of years ago when I was still at my former church, I used to get strep throat a lot. For those who have had it, it feels for a few days like you've been run over by a truck. Strep throat is a powerful enemy. You can get it and feel really crummy, and then you go to the doctor and they gag you with a stick to get a culture, and you find out you test positive, no surprise for veterans of the strep throat war, but then they give you antibiotics. And within a day or two, you start feeling better. Within a day or two, you score a little victory, that is, over this lousy bacterial infection called strep. Now, that's fine and good, unless it happens too much to you, especially as an adult. If it happens too many times, like say, oh, I don't know, four times in six months for a few years in a row, your doctor looks at you with a sort of pathetic look and says, I'm going to refer you to an ENT, and that's ear, nose, and throat, for those of you who never get strep. I'm going to refer you to an ENT doc and recommend that you get your tonsils out. Okay. Because the doctor said what happens is, and this is in layman's terms, the antibiotics knock a good deal of the strep out of you, all right, But a little bit of it, in some cases, gets stuck in your tonsils. It hides there, so it's not destroyed. You're not completely victorious over the strep because it's lurking, just waiting for you to get run down so it can come back with a vengeance. And so what we're going to do, he says, is get those tonsils out, and then you'll probably never get strep again because it will be totally gone then. You can have rest from your strep, relief from your enemy at last. And that's exactly what my doctor did. Dr. Spooner, what a name for an ENT. Just spoon those tonsils right out of there. Victory upon victory will be won over the strep, you see. Instead of a small victory here, then another battle over here, and a quick victory over here, and another battle here, and so on, yank the tonsils, complete victory. Victory upon victory. Now, change the subject. I spent the first part of a couple of weeks ago when I was preparing this message fretting about this chapter in Esther. How is this chapter even preachable? I mean, here it is, the Jews are just beating up on everyone, and then when it seems like the other side is just crying out for mercy, the head Jewess, Queen Esther, seemingly without mercy, says, well, let's do it again. Give my people an additional day to beat up their enemies, to kill them. And make them pay dearly for being enemies. And while we're at it, let's hang ten of their dead bodies on poles as a warning. Let's do it again tomorrow, is what she says. First part of the week, wondering, how do you preach that? I mean, do you say, well, morally, this wasn't the right thing to do? Do you say, well, God's not mentioned in the book anyway, so he's really not that involved here? Do you say, well, Esther's gone off the deep end, obviously. Do you say, we need to go out and do the same to our enemies and the enemies of God? How do you preach this? It's a tough passage, and quite frankly, our New Testament sensibilities sort of get, uh, get us saying things like, oh, all that violence back then, what a, what a pre-modern world, what a rough place it was to live, all that killing. The New Testament will not stand for that sort of thing. But you've got to dig a little deeper into the book of Esther and into the Old Testament to really understand what is at stake here. So we're going to do that tonight. It's not going to take too long, but you're going to have to follow closely. And the first thing we'll do tonight is figure out what the main point of the passage is. And the author has made it very easy for us. He puts it right in the middle. And everything around it points to it. So open up your Bibles again if you have closed them to Esther chapter 9, page uh, 714. First verse of the passage tells a little story all by itself, right? It tells when the Jews' victory happened. The date, 13th day, 12th month. The edict of the king is carried out, and the passage says that the Jews definitely had the upper hand. Mordecai's and Esther's second edict effectively counteracted the first one by Haman. So verse 1 tells us the date the victory happened. Now jump to the last part of the chapter, and you again have repeated the time that the victory happened. Verses 17 to 19, very end. 13th day was the victory, 14th day was the celebration, except in Susa, where they celebrated on the 15th day. We'll find out why in a moment. So these are the two bookends, if you will, of these 19 verses. The beginning bookend tells when the victory happened, the ending bookend says the same thing. Now let's work in some, verses 2 through 5. What do you have? You have the extent of the victory, right? Verses 2 and 4, gear us up for it. And verse 5 lays it out. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And now work inward from the end of the story, and you again have a repeat of verses 2 through 5. Verse 16, in fact, tells the extent of the victory throughout the empire. 16 says 75,000. Enemies of the Jews were killed empire-wide. Let's go further in, verses 6 through 10. You have a recap of what happened in the capital city of Susa on the first day. 500 enemies killed, plus the 10 sons of Haman, the arch enemy of the Jews, are killed. That happens in Susa. On day one of the fighting, verses 6 through 10, tell us about it. Now work backwards again, and you go to verses 14 through 15. Here you have a recap of what happens on day two of the fighting in Susa. 300 enemies killed, plus now the ten sons of Haman are displayed, as it were, on poles. That happens in Susa on day two of the fighting. Verses 14 through 15 tell us that. So you've got three concentric sets of similarities in the story on each end. You see that? First, the date of the victory. Next, the extent of the victory, empire-wide. And finally, a recap of the victory in the capital city, Susa. These all draw us to the very center Verses 11 through 13, the most important part of the passage, the focus, the part I didn't know what in the world I was going to do with. How do you defend Queen Esther for making this request? In these verses, 11 through 13, is where King Xerxes asks Queen Esther if she needs anything else. And you'd think, after 75,000, 510 enemies are killed, that you've made your point. And Queen Esther, being the genteel woman that she is, would say, oh no, we have to stop. Enough killing now. She doesn't say that. The part of the story that the author is most concerned that we see is the very middle, and in it, you know what Queen Esther says in verses 11-13, she says, pull out those tonsils, Yank them out. Give us another day to clean up these enemies, to make a point. Give us another day to completely destroy those enemies. 75,510 is not enough. Yikes. That's the focal point of this passage. And here's why. If you don't remember, way back at least a thousand years earlier than Esther's time. As the Lord God was delivering his beloved people out of the land of slavery, Egypt, as they begin their time in the desert, the very first nation that came to attack them were a people known as the Amalekites. Fresh out of Egypt, they're tired, they're thirsty, they're ragged, just out of slavery, beaten, worked mercilessly, God brings the Israelites out of that land, and one of the first things that happens to them is the Amalekites attempt to destroy them. And they're very strategic about it, too. They try to kill off the weaker Israelites who are lagging behind. They play dirty, in other words. They don't follow the civil war rules of war. Now, turn to Exodus 17, verse 8. It's found on page 102 fairly near the beginning of the Bible, page 102, Exodus 17, verse 8, Israel is fresh out of Egypt and we read this, verse 8, the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim and some of you know the story, if you look ahead. It's the time that Moses held up his hands during the battle, right? Every time his hands were raised, Joshua and his army, the Israel's army, were winning. And every time Moses' hands got tired and dropped, Joshua and Israel's army started losing. So eventually, Moses' arms were propped up. By Aaron and by a guy by the name of Hur. And when they did that, Joshua eventually won the battle. And the Lord says to Moses after that in verse 14, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered. I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. And in verse 16, Moses, as he's building an altar to the Lord, Moses tells us why. Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord the Lord will be at war against the amalekites from generation to generation and now turn to deuteronomy 25 deuteronomy 25 verse 17 page 283 283 deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 17 Page 283, after 40 years of desert wandering because of their own sin, God says this to his people as they're about to finally enter the promised land. Verse 17, remember remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came up out of Egypt? When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land. He is giving you to possess as an inheritance. You shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. You see, the Amalekites were a first and perennial threat to God's redemptive salvation plan that he planned on carrying out through the Israelites. The Israelites were the bloodline For Jesus Christ. A lot is at stake here for God's people and for us, the bloodline of Jesus Christ. The Amalekites became a kind of symbol for the forces of opposition against God's redemption plan. They were the first to attack God's people and God's plan after Egypt. They were the first to put God's redemption plan in jeopardy. They were the first to put the bloodline of Christ in danger of being wiped out. And so God's just and righteous anger burned against them. Generation after generation. And God said, Israel, there will come a day when you will blot out the memory of these Amalekites from under heaven. Do not forget. And now here they come again when Saul is king over Israel. First Samuel 15, turn there, page 401, page 401. 1 Samuel 15, page 401. And you want to look at verse um, 2, verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. So what does King Saul do? He starts out destroying, but as 1 Samuel 15 teaches us, he did not listen to the Lord. Verses 8 and 9 now say he took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. Verse 9, he spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. And so Saul, because he did not completely destroy the Amalekites, blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven because he refused to do what God wanted, Saul is rejected as king by God. And the perennial generational battles with the Amalekites continue. In fact, Samuel and David are 500 years after Egypt. The fights are still going on with the Amalekites against Amalek. Guess what? 500 years after that, now in Persia, the fights are still going on. And remember who was a descendant? of the first Amalekite king, King Agag, who battled against a worn-out Israel in the desert. Well, it's none other than Haman. Haman was an Agagite, a descendant of the king of the Amalekites. Remember what God said? You will blot out the memory of the Amalekites from under heaven. So now we're in Esther's time. And now we see Why Mordecai, a Jew, did not bow down to Haman, a descendant of the Amalekites. Haman is a person whom God has declared war against. Haman is the enemy of the Jews. Haman was bent, as the Amalekites always were, bent on destroying God's plan of redemption, destroying God's plan of bringing a Savior into the world through the bloodline of the Jews. So Mordecai does not bow down, that's from earlier in the book of Esther, because Mordecai is on the Lord's side. And Esther's request is the focus of this chapter, because what we have here is a 1,000-year-old war between God and the enemy, the one who would thwart his salvation plan. So Esther, yes indeed, asks for another day to kill the enemies. And Esther asks that the sons of this arch enemy be made examples of, and it's nothing to be ashamed about. In fact, it's something to celebrate, for the Jews have finally blotted out the memory of the Amalekites after all these years. God's promise to them is fulfilled at last. You see, finally, the main threat against Jesus' bloodline has been destroyed. And now there can at last be rest for the people of God. And the text says that. Esther 9 verse 16 says they finally get their relief from their enemies. They finally get to rest. The last major threat in the Old Testament to the line of Jesus. Interestingly, you also see in the Esther passage that the author makes it very clear that the Jews took none of the plunder of these enemies. Took none of it. The king Xerxes said they could get rich off these enemies of yours. Three times we read they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Do you think they remembered the story of King Saul who kept the sheep and the cattle and the calves and lambs? Of course they did. They didn't touch it. They didn't want any part of it. Didn't want to get anywhere near it. They finally got it right. Right? didn't keep any of it for themselves. Took them a thousand years, but finally, they have relief and rest from these enemies, the Amalekites. And that, beloved, is why Queen Esther ordered a tonsillectomy instead of stopping with an antibiotic. Because what was at stake? The reputation... Of the Lord God, the bloodline of redemption incarnate, the coming of the Messiah Jesus. Now, how do we translate this, though, this Old Testament story into the New Testament church? That's us. Does it even cross over? I mean. The bloodline of Jesus did go on, and he was born, and he died, and he rose from the dead, and God won the battle against the enemies of the Jews. So is this story something that we can apply to our lives? Well, sure it is. Sure it is. And here's how. Number one. I pressed the button. Hey, it worked. Okay, good. Uh, Number one. God is surely going to give me victory upon victory over my sin. He is. As I live my life, God is going to start having me win victories over the sins I struggle with. As you live your lives, as you walk with God, He will start giving you victories over the sins you struggle against. The Apostle Paul lays it all out in Romans chapter 8. He says, when you become a Christian, you are controlled by the Holy Spirit. And by that Spirit, he says, you put to death the misdeeds, the sins of the body. God is surely going to give me victory upon victory over my sin. It's not going to happen totally in this life. But one day, God is going to make us people who do not sin. Who sin no longer. God is going to perfect us. You see, it's victory upon victory. God is not content to leave loose ends untied. God brings total victory to believers. And so, beloved, live fiercely against sin, fiercely contesting the sin in your life, fiercely prevailing over it, fiercely claiming the victory you already have over sin through Jesus Christ, but also fiercely claiming the victory upon victory you will definitely have when your battle with sin is finally over and God makes you perfected in the life to come. Live fiercely against sin. Number two, God is surely going to give me ultimate victory over death. We already see this at the resurrection. Of course, death can't keep Jesus in the grave. He defeats death. God raises Jesus from the dead. But you know what? God's going to raise us too. We, too, will have resurrection bodies. We, too, have resurrection life already inside us. When we die, we will live in glory in heaven, in the new heavens and new earth. For the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15... That there will come a day when Jesus comes again, when death will be swallowed up in victory. The death of death itself is yet to come. Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The book of Revelation describes the scene like this. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and then death and Hades were Thrown into the lake of fire. There will come a time, you see, when the last enemy, death itself, will be destroyed. Will be no more. Victory upon victory for God and for his people. And so, beloved, live hopefully against death. Live in the sure hope of the resurrection life. Live hopefully in the sure hope of the total cataclysmic defeat and destruction of death itself. What a marvelous hope we have in Jesus Christ. Live hopefully against death. And number three now, God is surely going to give the church final victory over evil. How timely it is to hear that. Every day we hear in the news the battles raging in the world. You can't even tell who's who anymore, who's evil, who's on the Lord's side, but you sure can tell there's a battle raging, a battle of evil forces, a battle that the prince of darkness is waging against the Lord, like Haman and the Amalekites intent on destroying the Jews, intent on destroying God's chosen people so many years ago. There's a battle brewing Anti-Christian forces are amassing and they are fighting using every dirty trick in the book in our world. It's a battle that has been waged since the Garden of Eden. It's a battle that has been won by Jesus at the cross, but it's a battle that still rages on. It's a battle. Christian forces fight using the power of the gospel, using the power of the Christian witness, It's a battle that seems like all is lost for followers of Christ. But Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. But the one enthroned in heaven does what? Laughs. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For His wrath can flare up in a moment. God is surely going to give his church final victory over evil. The day will come and the enemies of Christ will be blown away like chaff. And so, beloved, live confidently against evil knowing that even now, in the chaos of the world at war, in a world of terror, in a world of persecution against Christians, live confidently against that evil, knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ is sovereign, he is ruling, and he will one day make all the terror and war and horror go away. And finally, number four. Before number three happens, though, God is surely going to give the church in the end All those whom he calls. God is adding daily to the number of those being saved. Around the world, God's word is being proclaimed and his spirit is bringing to life hearts that are dead. God surely will give the church in the end all those whom he calls, the elect of God. And every one of those whom he calls is another victory upon victory until the total, complete number of the kingdom of God is reached. And so, beloved, finally, live evangelistically. If you could hit that one for me, Doug. Thank you. Live evangelistically against Satan. We have one offensive weapon. The sword of the spirit that is the word of God. One weapon alone in the battle. The word of God and that little word has and will fell Satan. So proclaim that word. Proclaim Jesus. Proclaim his good news to those whom God is calling. Tell the good news. Shout it. Sing it. Invite. Strike up conversations. Do what it takes to live evangelistically, against Satan, telling the good news. Remember what's at stake now. Not the bloodline of Jesus Christ anymore. What's at stake now is the final resting place for every single person on the face of the earth. That's the battle we're engaged in, a battle that's already won, A battle where the victories are mounting victory upon victory. That's what's in store for God's people. And that's what's at stake for the world. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful that in a book that doesn't mention your name, you are so there. And your people... Though we don't hear about them praying or singing your praises or shouting hallelujahs, you worked in their lives. And you helped them to pay attention to what was going on and to know what needed to be done. Thank you, Lord God, for giving us this book and even this chapter, which seems so utterly violent, But thank you for tonight showing us what had to be done so that your continued redemptive plan would continue the way you wanted it to. Thank you for that. And thank you that as we look now to our world, we know that our battle against sin is difficult, but it's already won. We know that death, too, has been defeated. And we know that you are hard at work driving and stamping out the evil in this world. And we know that you are also bringing into your kingdom those who you have called, those who you have numbered as part of the kingdom of God. Lord God, help us to be a part of that. Help us to live in the ways we talked about in this message. And especially help us to be powerful in our witness, to live evangelistically. But to do that, we need the Word, the Word of God on our lips and in our hearts. And we know. That when that word goes out, it's not just a word. It's your son, Jesus Christ. That's the word that has won every battle and will finally, in the end, bring all things to conclusion. That word. We're so thankful for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.